from the Gospel of Mark as Mark writes about the crucifixion of our Lord. We're going to begin reading in verse 15, and we're going to read down to verse 27. And this entire passage that we are going to read is centered essentially on what the Romans did to Jesus. And we see this in a word that comes up consistently. Eleven times the word they is mentioned in reference to the Romans. This passage of scripture is interesting because there's no direct speech recorded. Nobody's talking here. It's like all the action is being done and people are watching it in silence. It is all written in what we call the historic present, meaning it's as if it's all happening right now. So we're looking back 2,000 years ago, but as we read it, we feel like we are in the moment. And it is obvious that God intends for us to look to listen and to be quiet because everyone is watching Jesus. So let's begin reading in verse 15 and we'll read down to verse 27. The scripture says, and so Pilate willing to content the people released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon of Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Jesus was tried in two courts, a religious court and a civil court. He was tried by both the Jews and the Romans. And in both courts, Jesus Christ was condemned to die the death of a criminal. Within the realm of the religious court, he was condemned for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And in the civil court, he was condemned to die for treason because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Now, as we begin this section this morning, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has already done two things to Jesus. Number one, he has scourged him. Number two, he has condemned him to be crucified. What was scourging? Well, it preceded crucifixion. It it consisted of a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip containing embedded pieces of sheep bone and metal. Many people died during the scourging. Then secondly, there was crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented to make death as miserable as possible. It included, first of all, being nailed to a cross where you hung until you died. Sometimes it would take days. 
And the primary cause of death was the filling up of the lungs with fluid. And so crucifixion was used primarily as a deterrent for crime. People would not commit the crime because they did not want to die by crucifixion. So in this passage we read today, we actually have two scenes going on. Scene number one is in the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium. Here the entire Roman cohort of soldiers was called to come to the mockery of Jesus. A cohort usually was somewhere around 480 soldiers and it was one-tenth of a Roman legion. And this became the scene of major abuse towards Jesus. Never forget, Jesus understands what it means to be abused. And in the end, they bow their knees and they mockingly worship Jesus by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The second scene takes place at a, at a place called Golgotha or the place of the skull. This is where Jesus is crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And there, the Roman soldiers nail Jesus to a cross. And then they post a placard above his head, which is declaring the charge of his accusation that was written. And it says, the king of the Jews. On either side of him are two thieves being crucified along with him. So what Mark is saying here in his gospel is what he has been saying consistently all along in his entire theme throughout the gospel of Mark. And Mark wants us to understand two very important things. Number one, he wants us to understand who Jesus is. That Jesus is the king and we are to worship him. And secondly, he tells us what a true disciple is. What a follower of Jesus looks like. And therefore, he wants us to take up our cross and follow him. So those are the two things I'd like us to look at this morning. First of all, I want us to look at how Mark reveals who Jesus is, where he actually in this experience shows himself to be the true king. Now, when you look at these scenes, you can actually look at it from different points of view or different sets of eyes. And there are three viewpoints that we find here in the mockery of Jesus in the Praetorium. The first is from the viewpoint of just mockery. Mark tells us what's happening on the most natural and the most surface level. When you read it, that's what you see. Let me read to you beginning in verse 17. It says, and they clothed him with purple and they planted a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and they did spit upon him and bowing their knees, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him. What does it mean to be mocked? You probably experienced that. It means to be made fun of. It means to be ridiculed. It means that, that you are pretending to be somebody that you are not and, by, and you are imitating that person in a distorted manner. The Roman soldiers mocked Jesus for claiming to be the king. And this mockery included clothing him in purple, placing a crown of thorns on his head as if that was the crown of the king and bowing their knees saying, hail king of the Jews. And this is the way that the Romans would have surely seen the event. It was a form of mockery. Then there's a second viewpoint. And that is the viewpoint of irony. And that's actually what Mark is writing here. For irony is the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for a humorous or emphatic, uh, or for an emphatic effect. So the purple robe, the scepter, the crown, they're all artifacts. But of course, it was ironic because he actually is the king. And they didn't even realize that when they were crucifying him. 
The words they said, hail king of the Jews, is actually a true confession, for he is the king of the Jews. And when the soldiers are saying what they're saying and doing their mockery, where, where what they're saying is actually the truth, this is the irony of it all. For he truly is the king. And then there's a third viewpoint, and that's the viewpoint of sovereignty. In other words, everything that is taking place is exactly what God intended to take place. This entire event is not a mistake. It is not a series of unfortunate events. But what took place as we read it in scripture is exactly the plan of God. He intended for this from eternity past. And how do we know this? Number one, because this whole event was prophesied in the past. Jesus had already prophesied this event three times in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. He had prophesied it through his final prediction on the Last Supper, where he said he would give his body and his blood memorialized in the bread and the wine of the meal. Many of these events that we read about this morning in Mark are already found in the Old Testament. The mockery is prophesied in Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. The parting of his garments and the casting of the lots was prophesied in Proverbs twenty two eighteen. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And the two thieves hanging on either side of Jesus was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Here's the point. It needs to be firm in our mind that what happened historically when Jesus was crucified on the cross was not a mistake, but it was the plan of a sovereign God who planned this before he ever created the world. For Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. But let me also say that we know that this was planned because it indicates a very clear scheduled event. You say, how do you know that? Because Mark uses the hours of the day very clearly. He says, first of all, that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. The day was measured by six o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the evening. At at the ninth, at the third hour, excuse me, that was at nine o'clock in the morning, three hours after 6 a.m. And then we read in in, in verse 33 of chapter 15, that at the sixth hour, the day became dark as night. And then at, on the ninth hour, at three o'clock in the afternoon, it says in verse 34 that Jesus was crucified. So we see a really clear schedule. So what appears to be a mistake in the mistreatment of Jesus was the plan of God. You see, the road that led to the cross was God's pathway for his son to become the king. That was God's plan. The the suffering that Jesus went through was his coronation service as the king of kings. The soldiers scourging him, spitting in his face, striking him with the palm of their hands was the order of service for his coronation. And what was his crown? It was the cross. What was his throne? It was the tree. So that from a human standpoint, the Romans crucified Jesus, but from a divine perspective, the Romans crowned Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about the wisdom of God. 
The world does not understand this. And let me say to you this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ as a son of God, if you embrace his cross as your salvation, if you embrace his resurrection as your hope, you are believing that not because you naturally believe that because the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. You are believing that today because God in his mercy has opened your eyes and given you his wisdom. For the cross is the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of man. It is on the cross that we get the right opinion of Jesus, where we see him as our redeemer, our sacrifice, our propitiation, and our ransom. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. True biblical worship is always cross-centered, crossed cross-focused. We worship a crucified, risen king. And so the Romans, who had ironically mocked and crucified Jesus, became the tool of God in the wisdom of God for the accomplishment of his purpose and for the glorification of his name. It is on the cross that we see the glory of God. So what should we do? We should worship the king. We should bow our knees. We should prostrate, fall on the, on the, prostrate, fall on the ground and worship the Lord for who he is as a king. But that leads me to the second thing that Mark wants to reveal. And that is not only who is the true king, but who are true disciples? Who are the followers of Jesus? Now, Jesus had already told us in Mark what a true follower of Jesus is like. It said, if, he says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But it is at this point in Mark's gospel that we find that the disciples had already miserably failed in following these demands. How do we know that? Because one disciple, Judas, betrayed Jesus. One disciple, Peter, had denied Jesus. And all the other 10 disciples had run away from Jesus. And I want to be clear that God's standard for discipleship does not change just because other people fail or they fall. And in this passage, Mark does something that we read this morning where he uses a unique writing technique to arrest our attention and to illustrate his point. And the technique is a contrast between what we call insiders and outsiders. Now, you kind of know what an insider is here at Bob Jones uh, how many of you had a parent that went to Bob Jones University? Raise your hand. Okay, you're an insider. How many of you did not have a parent that go, went to Bob Jones University? Yeah, right, yeah, you're an outsider. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, how many of you? How many of you were homeschooled with BJU Press? Raise your hand. Okay, you're an insider. How many never even heard of BJU Press before you came here? Yeah, you're an outsider. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? All right. Well, who were the insiders in Jesus's day? Obviously, they were the ones that were closest to him, his disciples, his family. These were the ones that spent the most time with him. They were intimately close to Jesus. Yet on the other hand, the, the outsiders were those that came to Jesus and they followed him without any apparent or previous knowledge or relationship with Jesus. For example, blind Bartimaeus, the maniac of Gadara, the woman that touched the hem of his garment. These were all outsiders who didn't, if I could say, grow up with Jesus. And they, they came at it differently. 
And what Jesus, what Mark is doing here is he is, he is really illustrating discipleship, not through the insiders who failed, but through the outsiders who were changed. And notice the first outsider. His name was Simon of Cyrene. We read that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And he was conscripted by the Roman soldiers to help Jesus carry his cross. Now, when a man was condemned to die in ancient times by crucifixion, he would normally carry the heavy cross beam on his back. It was called the patibulum. It weighed somewhere over 100 pounds. The ancient Greek biographer Plutarch writes, every criminal condemned to death bears his cross on his back. Jesus began to carry the cross to the place of execution after he had gone through his horrific scourging. He was going outside the city walls to a place called the place of a skull, either because it looked like a skull or that's where people who died, they left their bones there. They were, they were ravaged by the birds and the dogs and there were skulls laying around. In either case, Jesus carried this cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He was weak. He had lost blood and he was unable to carry on. You know, I think about it. If Jesus at times was unable to carry on, how many of us feel like that? How many times do we feel like we are carrying heavy weights on our back and we don't know if we can make it? And even for our Lord, there was one who came to help him. His name was Simon and he carried the cross on his back. Cyrene was, a, was on the coast of North Africa in Libya. And Mark mentions three personal names here, Simon, and then he mentions his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Now that's got to be very unusual and really has a significant meaning. We're not sure exactly who Alexander was, but we're pretty sure who Rufus was. He was a member of the church in Rome. Paul writes in Romans 16, 13, Greek, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. So it appears like Simon was a revered disciple of Jesus in the minds of the Romans. And Simon is mentioned immediately following the mentioning of the crucifixion, reinforcing the distinguishable mark of a disciple. They take up their cross and they follow Jesus. Simon becomes the first person in Mark who literally fulfills that command. For Mark, discipleship is not a symbolic gesture. It's not a tipping of the hat, but it is a concrete command that comes out in the way that you live. And Mark's message of discipleship then is still the message today. If anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross. Are you taking up your cross? Are you denying yourself? If the mindset you have is seeking to please self, you are not following Jesus Christ. A real follower denies his own flesh. He recognizes his own selfishness and he chooses to deny himself, identify with Jesus Christ, embrace his crucifixion. For if Christ embraced the cross as his crown, surely we must embrace the same cross with him. So we see number one, Simon. Then secondly, we see the second outsiders. And these were the two thieves. Listen to what it says. And with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. Now, why do these two thieves, what do these two thieves remind us of? Well, if you go back in chapter 10, after Jesus predicted his crucifixion, James and John came to Jesus with a very unusual request. Do you recall the request? They said, master, we would 
that you should do for us whatever we desire. That's an interesting request. That's like a student coming up to me. And by the way, I'm not Jesus, but a student coming up to me saying, uh, president, we would like you to do whatever we want. And I would go say, go ahead. What do you want? Listen to what Jesus said. And he said to them, what would you that I should do for you? And they said unto him, grant us that we may sit on my, on thy right hand and on thy left hand in thy glory. Now, James and John wanted to sit on either side of Jesus when he entered into his reigning glory. And their perception of Jesus's glory meant a, a throne and a crown. But what they didn't realize that his glory was actually a tree and a cross. So Jesus tells them it was not in his power to give them those places of honor. However, he could offer them something. And what was that? Listen to what he says. But Jesus said unto them, you know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. That's pretty bold. Jesus said unto them, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I'm baptized with all, you shall be baptized but to sit on my right hand on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. It is at this place in the story, every reader would have remembered what James and John requested. They wanted to sit on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus in his glory. But the disciples did not have at that time the wisdom to understand that the glory was his cross. And in light of the disciples' failure in Simon's cross bearing, it becomes quite clear that the position on either side of Jesus in Jerusalem are not positions of power, but they are sharing in his suffering. Jesus could not guarantee them the position that they requested, but he could guarantee that they would share in his suffering and that, that and which would guarantee a position on either side of him. Think about that. If you want to be close to Jesus, you have to embrace suffering. That's a hard lesson. That's a hard message. And in some ways, you know who it's hard for? It's hard for people who've grown up in the Christian faith. An outsider getting saved, life is miraculously changed. He goes from darkness to light. He sees the glory of God. He says, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to follow you. And so he embraces suffering. He reads verses like 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And, And it's like, okay, I'm all in. But somebody's grown up in Sunday school, gone to Christian school, comes to Christian college. How well do you embrace suffering? Is that not a hard pill to swallow? Is that not some kind of medicine you don't want to drink? And yet the teaching of the New Testament is that we reign through suffering. That's how Jesus became the king. And that's how we become his disciples. And so Mark calls us as disciples to take up our cross, embrace it, and identify with him and follow him. That's what he said to James and John. That's what he says to us today. As we come into tomorrow, Good Friday, may we think about these thoughts and worship our King. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your glory. A glory that's not from man's perspective but it is a glory that comes because of what you've done on the cross. Lord, help us to embrace your suffering. 
Lord, many times it's very reluctant, very reluctant, very slow. Forgive us of our slowness. But you have said, as Paul said, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection in the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, I pray that you'll raise up in this particular congregation of people today, young people who will go out in the world and will embrace suffering as a part of their calling. And through that, you'll manifest and show your power in a great and mighty way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.